Our text this afternoon is Psalm 51. Um, it's a psalm like a, a number of them that come with this explanation at the beginning that kind of lays out the historical events that are surrounding um, the psalm being written. Uh, it gives us a little more context of what exactly in the life of David in this case led to him writing this psalm. And, uh, so for that reason, in this case, it's really, it's really important that we understand that. I want us to, uh, you don't need to turn there, I want you to be in Psalm 51, but we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 for a minute, and, and then uh, we're going to work our way through Psalm 51, and hopefully that puts it all in its proper place. So <clears throat> you might be familiar with the situation, some of this stuff you might remember from children's Sunday school, although this gets skipped a lot. Um, the Israeli, or Israelite, I guess we call it back then, army is at war with a, uh, a kingdom where the people are called the Ammonites. And the kings at this time were expected not just to send people to war, but to go to war, uh, to be out there, to be fighting with the soldiers. Uh, and, and yet at this moment, and we don't fully understand why, but David decides to stay home. And, and one afternoon, David decides he's going to go for a walk, and he goes out on the roof of his house, and, and he sees in the distance there is a, a woman... Uh, named Bathsheba, who is bathing on the roof of her house. Um, apparently, this is not totally insane uh, at this time period. Uh, the idea, though, is that she's out of the sight of most people, and yet because, uh, and this is kind of what, what is assumed at this point, but because of the height of David's house, he can actually see what's happening, and, and he sees her and, and is drawn to that. And we're told that she is beautiful, and David begins to ask some people about her, and, and he's told, you know, this is whose daughter she is, and she is married to this man, Uriah, and, and that's her husband. And yet David in that moment decides he desires her anyway, and he sends his servants to go get her and, and bring her. And uh, so the text of Scripture tells us that he laid with her. And sometimes later, or sometime later rather, Bathsheba uh, sends this message back to David with these three simple words on it. I am pregnant. And David does what a lot of people do when confronted with an embarrassing, fearful, um, horrible sin in his life. He tries to cover it up. Uh, and in this case, he tries to cover his sins of coveting his neighbor's wife and adultery. And he does so by calling for her husband to come back from war, back into town, in the hope that he might be able to convince everyone that that's how this came about. Um, and yet her husband is so loyal, ironically, to David and to his country uh, that he refuses to, to take part in this plan. Uh, he won't go back to his home because that was something soldiers did not do while the war was still going on. And so uh, he does not go back. David, still trying to cover his sin, comes up with an alternate plan. And the alternate plan is to give orders so that Uriah is sent to the front lines where, as expected, he ends up being killed in battle. And David then makes Bathsheba his wife, uh, since she becomes a widow at this point, and she gives birth to the son. And, and now I want to read to you the, uh, the text in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7, because here we see David being confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan. And, uh, and then after we read this, we'll pray and we'll work through Psalm 21, which is a response after that. So uh, before I read this, though, just remember this, this interaction between David and Nathan happens at least nine months after the initial sin. And I just tell you that so you understand he's been hiding this a long time. It's not like it happened on Monday and this is Friday. This is after a long time. Most likely thinks he's gotten away with it. So 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and, he, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. It's referring back to the situation with Bathsheba. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. God, we are outsiders looking in on the sin of our late brother David. May we not do so with pride for which of us is without sin in our own life. And to which of us have you ever said that this is a man or a woman after your own heart? God, may we feel our sin today. May we know it. And would you be so kind as to grant to us repentance that we might confess it? And would you show us this evening that your mercy is greater than our sin? Would you show us that the only real solution to guilt is forgiveness? And that forgiveness, real forgiveness, Lord, is found only in your open hands of mercy and grace. It's the name of our forgiving Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So the pretext of Psalm 51 says to the choir master, a psalm of David when David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone gone into Bathsheba. Um, this was written to be a psalm to be sung by the people of God, uh, and it's looking back at this great terrible sin in the life of King David. Uh, to kind of put this in perspective, imagine if you will this evening that Travis stood up earlier and said, uh, "Stand and." Uh, Open your bulletins, because we're going to be singing our hymn of response tonight, which is about that time that Brian committed the most disgusting, horrendous, and embarrassing sin of his life, and that's going to be our song of worship this evening. I would not like that. Imagine if we switch my name with your name, none of you would like that either. That's because we like to hide our sin. We don't want people to know about it. That's generally how we want to deal with our sin, is just hide it. So we, we hide it from others, and we think that we hide it from God. And at some point, you've got to wonder, really, what's the point of that? You can't hide your sin from God. You you might be able to hide something as bad as adultery from your spouse or a pornography struggle from your family. You may be able to keep an addiction to anything, prescription drugs, alcohol, whatever, from your coworkers. You may even be able to cover up your pride with some sense of false humility that you put forward. You might even succeed at covering one lie with another lie, and of course another lie to make sure the first lie is never discovered. But in the end, the one who actually holds us accountable for our sin knows what we've done. We simply cannot hide our sin from our God, who knows even our thoughts before we have them. So I hope you understand that what we see in David uh, is, is the truth here, that no one is so holy that they cannot fail. Not me and not you. Any of you could be in this position. And I hope that you feel the weight of sin this afternoon. 
whatever it, it might be. And I, and I say this because I, I think that God's grace and mercy can become meaningless to us at times when we lose sight of our own depravity. And, and my prayer this week as I've been looking over this text has been that, that we might feel um, the weight of our personal sin in our life. Whether that be something as common as, as gossip or as rare as what we're seeing David commits in this moment. But I also want you to know that this psalm, this psalm is for anyone. Anyone who thinks that their sin is too bad or too much or too often to be forgiven by a merciful father. And so when we see David in 2 Samuel here, he is, he's hiding his sin, right? Uh, it's a terrible thing when we look at it from the outside. Uh, in fact, we even see that he's committing other sins to cover up his initial sin in this vain hope that somehow he might actually protect his reputation. Probably shouldn't put in a song if you're looking for that. But by the time he writes Psalm 51 here, I need to understand that he's already had this interaction with the prophet Nathan. And in that moment, through that work, through his word, God actually changes David's heart. And so now we're seeing a man who is convicted of a sin, a man who gives absolutely no defense of his sin. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't try to reason it in any way. And what we see is, is beautiful because this is the soul of a sinner that is just laid absolutely bare before his God, hiding nothing. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51 with me, I'll read them. He, <clears throat> it says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, in a moment like this, he could have tried to blame everyone. He could have tried to blame Bathsheba. What is she doing on the roof? Why is she visible? Why publicly? What's going on? He could have used that as a way to try to blame someone. He could have put the blame on the stress of war. Do you have any idea what's going on with me? could have put it on his, his parents or his upbringing. could have put it on being tired or depressed or anything. But one of the things we see here is like every truly broken person I've ever met, he gives absolutely no excuse for the reason of his sin. But he goes directly to the one who might grant ultimate forgiveness for that sin. See, I have no doubt that although David lived on the other side of the cross, that he is a child of God, who is trusting in the promise of God, and, and here he has experienced the agony of what unconfessed sin in his life feels like, looks like, is like. I think for us this is a wonderful model of how we might respond to sin in our own lives, that we, that we feel it, that we let the guilt of our sin sink in. It's nothing to be skipped or ignored. And we don't make little of it, and yet that we go. We don't remain there. That we go to God and we ask, yes, we even plead with God, just like our text says here, have mercy on me, O God. That we plead not with the tone of someone who feels they deserve forgiveness, but with the confidence as a child of God, believing that he will ultimately grant us forgiveness, not because of ourselves, but because of himself, because of Christ, really. You see, you notice in the second phrase of verse 1, David doesn't appeal to anything about himself. <clears throat> it's not God, look how many great things I've done. Look what I've done for my church. Look how all these people I've helped or anything of that nature. He appeals rather to the mercy of God. He appeals rather to the steadfast love of God. It's this, forgive me. Not because of who I am, God, but forgive me because of who you are. 
See, David knows that he is guilty and he pleads with God for mercy. Did you also notice in here that there's three different words for sin? A few nuances going on there. First, he refers to his transgressions. Uh, This designates a a rebellious action, which is really an intentional and willful moment of disobedience. And he mentions here, not in the singular, it's, it's plural, acknowledging his many willful acts of rebellion against God. The second word he uses here is iniquity, which is to bend or twist something at its most basic level. It's to stray from the path that God has for, for us. Um, and that's what he did. David, <clears throat> David took the God-given gift of sex and he twisted it into a terrible sin. And finally, the term that we're most familiar with is just the term sin. Uh, most of you probably know this. It's to miss the mark, sort of like aiming at a target and not hitting what you have aimed at. He lied rather than tell the truth. He missed the mark. Um, rather than use his power for good, David used it for lust and to fulfill his, his sinful desires. Rather than preserving life, he took the life of Uriah. Um, and again, even as we get to the forgiveness, we'll see here David uses three distinct terms. First, he says, blot out my transgressions. This is just a request for something to be wiped clean. Um, you know, we might say it today, um, God, delete my sin. That's in our culture. Some of you older people might remember the Etch-a-Sketch. God, shake my Etch-a-Sketch so the picture is gone forever. Um, He also says, wash me. This is a term for cleaning, for removing dirt and filth. And uh, finally, this cleanse me is a term used in in temple ceremonies. It's, It's being made ritually clean. David is making this plea to God to make me clean, make me pure in every single way I can imagine. And so he uses all these different terms. And then in verses 3 and 5, I want you to follow along as I read this. It says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me. And again, we see those three terms for sin. Well, only this time there's a fourth term added, evil. And this is just acknowledging the judgment of what his actions have been to be evil. The uh, overarching thing I want you to see here is our, our need to have conviction for our sin. See, David says his, his sin is ever before him. This is not some simple acknowledgement of, yeah, I guess that's sin. Um, but it's this vivid picture of how his sin has, has haunted him. And in our lives, this is really the difference between, on the one hand, our, our confessing simply that we are a sinner, just like everyone else. You know, in general, it's easy to agree to that. And on the other hand, really knowing, really feeling the particular sin that we've committed. You've likely experienced both of those in your life. And David understands that ultimately here, all sin is an offense against God. And so when David says that phrase, against God only, or against you only, God, have I sinned, It's not that no one was hurt. It's not that no one else was affected by his sin because certainly Uriah and Bathsheba and the child were all hurt deeply by his sin that he's committed. And hurting other humans is terrible, but really the great, the horror of sin here is that against our almighty God who is holy, 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 that's who our sin has been against. And so it's, well, in one sense, it's expected that we're going to sin. 
Uh, as even David makes reference to here in verse 5 when he's saying I was, he, that he was born a sinner. So of course he's going to sin. That's the expectation. And yet uh, the fact that he, we are born sinners does not lessen how terrible our sin is. And it does not lessen the fact that we are guilty before our God who is holy. So my hope is that we might hate sin, that we might regret sin, and we might bring our sin to God as we lay our souls bare before him. That's what I'm hoping we see here. In verse 6, we see that, that God desires for us to speak truth. And I hope you've, you've felt that feeling before, the weight of, of, of it beginning to lift off of you when you've become honest. Uh, you probably feel it when you've been honest with another human, but especially when we find ourselves before God, being honest with Him, um, who it was never hidden from to begin with. And then again, beginning in verse 7, David pleads for cleansing from his sin. And we see this over and over and over again. I want you to follow along as I read verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. I bet very few of us here today have ever prayed that to God. God, purge me with hyssop. I think we haven't prayed that because we have no idea what we're asking for. It'd be like going to one of those foreign restaurants where you don't speak the language and ordering something. Um, but you see, unlike ordering mountain oysters, trust me, you really do want to ask God to purge you with hyssop. See, hyssop is a, a plant. It's a shrub. Matt, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. Um, but the way it's made is with a, a number of little branches that come off of it. And it's used in a, a number of ceremonial uh, cleansing. And so it's this reference to ceremonial cleansing. And, and in the ceremonial cleansing, an animal would be sacrificed. And then the priest would take the hyssop branch, which basically serves like a brush. And he would dip it into it, into, it, uh, into the blood. And then he would fling or sprinkle the blood on someone, um, making them spiritually or ritually cleansed. Uh, this was also... Uh, typically someone who was a leper, or someone who had touched a dead body or done anything else that would consider them uh, ceremonially unclean. It was also what was used during the Passover. You, you're probably familiar with that story. When the Israelites, uh, according to God's directions, then killed the Passover lamb, and then they took the blood <clears throat> onto the hyssop, and, and they dipped the hyssop into it, and then the blood of the lamb was, was put on the doorpost of the house so that the firstborn son in the house would be spared when the angel of death passed by. See, when we read this uh, through the lens of Christ, it's, it's easy to see this, this foreshadowing uh, that David is asking to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. He's asking to be made white as snow, which is a great picture. David knows here that God is, is able not just to make him cleaner than he was before, but able to make him perfectly clean, make him as white as snow. And I love that because... It's not just white as an old man's beard or anything else that's quasi-white, but, but as white as the whitest thing they can even think of, and, and snow is that. That's one of the things I loved about moving to Kansas. In Houston, we never got snow, but, but moving here, every time it snows and it's deep enough to cover the land, everything is just absolutely that brilliant, bright shade of white, and I think of this. I think that that's how it is for us in the gospel when God washes our sin away to be as white as, as snow. Then we see in verse 8 that forgiveness is the condition that must be given from God if David is going to hear um, 
joy and gladness again in his life. It's a beautiful thing here. You get that forgiveness before rejoicing. See, there's an odd statement in the second half of that verse. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is a reference to the discipline of God. It's a terrible picture, but that's what it's a reference to, that, that David has experienced, and now looking forward, he's looking forward to this healing, to this restoration that God brings through his sin being forgiven. In verse 9 again, asked that God would blot out his sins, and this leads us into verse 10, where David asked God to, to not only remove his sin, but to do an active work in his life as well. Uh, look at verse 10 with me. This is what I, I want us to make our own prayer. It reads, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's hard to read that nowadays without singing the song that goes along with that. Um, which is pretty great, really. Um, but that's what we want, isn't it? Clean hearts. Something interesting here about the word create. As I was looking at my study, I, I looked it up, and it's this Hebrew word, bara. And uh, in the Hebrew, when it's translated, it means create, which is exactly what you see in your text. So that's not real interesting. Um, what was interesting is that this is used exclusively in the sense of divine creation, something that God creates exclusively in that use. And so when God created the world, and that's recounted in the book of Genesis, this is the word that's there, bara. And when God states that he created man for his glory in Isaiah 43, 7, this is the word that is there, bara. And, and here when David pleads to God to create a clean heart with him, it's bara. You see where I'm going with this? See, if you want clean clothes, you can wash them yourself. At least find someone that knows how to work the washing machine. If you want a clean car, you can, you can get out in the yard and you can do that yourself. But if you want a clean heart, you cannot do it yourself. You must go to the only one who can create a clean heart for you. God Almighty. And the only way that you can go to God is through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, then, is a verse that we read and we, we see an immediate issue with you. Look at it with me. It says... Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You'll see an issue with that? I think it took me a, a while, but I can remember reading that years ago and, and having this question. You mean God might take the Holy Spirit from us? That was a disturbing idea. I think it's important then that we understand that the Holy Spirit ministers in a number of ways. And in John 14, 26, we, we see that the Holy Spirit teaches us when Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The scriptures tell us a number of other things that the Holy Spirit does in our life. Uh, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. We see that in Romans 8, 26. The Holy Spirit leads us. Matthew 4.1, the Holy Spirit gives us life. John 6.63, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the scriptures. We see that in 2 Timothy 3.16. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures. What that means is that the Holy Spirit makes us able to believe them, makes us able to understand them. We see that in Psalm 119.18 and Ephesians 1.17 and 18. And the Spirit brings about salvation. John 3.7 or 3-7. We're told that the Spirit empowers the preaching of the Word. 1 Corinthians 2.4, that 
Uh, he enables us to die to sin. Romans 8.13 strengthens us. Ephesians 3.16 seals our adoptions as the sons of God. Romans 8.16 gives us spiritual gifts to the church. 1 Corinthians 12. We also see that another ministry of the Holy Spirit is to, um, as a special anointing for a particular task. We see that all over the Old Testament. Exodus 31, 1 through 6, there the craftsmen who worked on the temple were given the Holy Spirit for a particular task. It was true in, in, for Joshua uh, in Numbers 27, true of many of the judges, including Samson, many of the prophets. And it was true of David. So the Holy Spirit works in his life in a particular way for a particular task. And, and what was David's particular task? Simply put, it was lead the people of God. And at this point in history, that meant he was the king of Israel. That was the special role that he was fulfilling. And this was also the particular task of the king before him. You might remember King Saul. God anointed King Saul to be the ruler of Israel. And after Saul fails in many ways, and, and God eventually removes the Holy Spirit from him, we read that in 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. See, it was removed for that special task he'd been set aside part for. And so David then is asking God to keep his special anointing of the Holy Spirit, that it would remain upon him so that he can continue to fulfill this task of, of leading Israel. And since he'd seen it leave Saul, you can imagine this is a very real fear for him. I think as we think through this, uh, it can create a lot of fears in our own sense of can we lose the Holy Spirit. So let me be real clear here. Old Testament believers, just like New Testament believers, were regenerated and born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit was re has regenerated someone, he will not remove that. God will complete what he has begun. And so believers in the Old Testament and believers in the New Testament could not and cannot lose their salvation. See, when we are in great sin, even smaller sins that just weigh on us, I think there's this fear that, that God is leaving us. But the truth of the gospel is that God will never abandon his children. So if God has brought you, uh, has bought you, rather, with the blood of Christ, then you're his. And, and if you are his, then he will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. That's straight from Hebrews 13.5. Don't worry about that. If you're Christ and have been purchased by his blood, you do now and will continue to belong to him. In verse 12 of our text, we see a prayer that honestly I think many of us should be praying more often. It says this. He says, God, uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. I think there's an irony that in our culture today, sin is, uh, it almost means a good time. Uh, in fact, I was driving by a taco place the other day, and they, they had something about sinfully divine was written on the windows. And I thought, what in the world is that? I do not want that. Um, <coughs> sorry. But there's this idea today that like sin is this association with that's what you really want. This is the good stuff. You know, you want fun and joy and awesome pleasure. Sin, go for it. Um, that's not what David experiences. See, David's very aware of what sin has taken from him. And here he's saying that sin has taken joy from him. See, I'd not be surprised if there's many of us even sitting here today that are experiencing this lack of joy in our life because there's some seemingly giant sin or some ongoing habitual sin that we can't seem to get a handle on is in our life. 
and it's just been weighing on us and robbing us of the joy that we have in Christ. So I'd encourage you then to understand that if your faith is in Christ, then the sin, whatever sin might have come to your mind at that moment, come to your thoughts that that sin also is forgiven in Christ. And so repent. It's a weird thing to shout out as a pastor. In every movie, right? Just like that, repent. It's not a call for you to do something you're incapable of doing, or it is a call for you to do something you're incapable of doing, but something that God can do for you. And the the reason I would say that to you is because I'd love to see God restore the joy that you have in Him. I think others of us might be lacking joy in their life today because the stresses of life have really overshadowed just the reality of, of what it means to have salvation in Christ. Because the reality that my sins have been forgiven should trump absolutely everything else in the entire world. Everything. I mean, I think through this. Are you struggling to get along with somebody in your life? Just frustrated, don't know what to do. That's very real. But this trumps that. Are you frustrated with your job? Are you finding parenting difficulty? Is it wearing you out? Do you feel like an absolute failure in that? You know, there's all these things that just begin to weigh us down. Did something really expensive in your life break recently? And you're just worried about how that must be replaced. I mean, you name it, anything at all. And the truth is that you are forgiven, that your sin is forgiven. For the rest of eternity trumps whatever it is. You name it, this trumps it. There is nothing greater in the world. And yet it's not always the case. But, I mean, it's not always the case. But Christians, more than anyone on this planet, should radiate with joy. I don't mean some cheesy joy. I mean deep, real, my sin is forgiven. Christ is my Savior. I am redeemed. And this is the life that God has given me sort of joy. So if your life is difficult, I want you to remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself that you're a child of God and that you are loved by your Creator, deeply loved by your Creator. And that the whole world could honestly crumble beneath us, which is a terrifying idea. But the truth of our salvation in Christ would remain to be true in that moment. See, what happens when we understand our place in the gospel, then, is what we see here in verse 13. Look at it. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. See, when we truly feel the reality that our sins have been forgiven, then it it moves us to speak about Christ to those who need rescue. You know, we love to talk about things that we think are amazing. How many parents have you met who have the most genius child on the planet? We love to talk about things we think are amazing. You know, truly knowing that our sin has been forgiven gives us this boldness to tell others about the forgiveness that we have received. Notice also that this is tied to the next two verses, 14 and 15. There it says, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See, we don't just turn to tell others about our Savior, but we open our lips and we just sing praise to God who has saved us. You don't have to know much of anything at all about theology, about scripture, to know that God through the gospel has saved you if your faith is in Christ. And so even with the most basic understanding, the most basic knowledge, you can open your lips and you can praise him for the greatness that he is and the greatness that he has done for us. In a sense, 
We tell other beggars where we have found nourishment. And I know that's a famous quote, and I can't remember what it is, but, you know, in a sense, we are pointing them to Christ who we have trusted in. All you have to know is who you're trusting in to be able to point someone else to that. And the last four verses then deal with worship. You remember, sacrifices weren't about God getting dead animals. I know it seems like that sometimes when we're reading it. God could get all the dead animals he wanted. He had it at his, at his access to it. Um, he wasn't interested in that. See, the sacrifices were overwhelmingly about worship. It was a way of saying, God, you are worthy of my finest lamb. Here it is. Uh, you are worthy of my greatest turnip, or whatever you're growing. Here it is. And, and, and so we, you know, follow along. I want you to look at this. Verse 16, or starting there. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, the point is that God is not asking for the actions of worship alone. Alone. But he's asking for the heart of worship to, to go with those actions. See, what God does desire of his children is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And this is... This is how I hope we approach worship here. This broken spirit. I mean, understand that. That broken spirit is opposed to a proud spirit. The broken spirit says, I need you, God. And the proud spirit says, I got this, God. And so do we come to God empty-handed with full knowledge that we are absolutely unworthy to come to him at all? You know, do we come with this contrite heart? Uh, the dictionary definition is... is uh, defines contrite as someone who is filled with a sense of guilt and the desire for atonement. So we come boldly to God as the redeemed, as, the redeemed, as we are the redeemed, but, but we also come with broken spirits and contrite hearts knowing that God is ever merciful to us. So here's the deal. Um, you need to know this too. David does continue to face the consequences in his life for the sin that he's committed. I think it's important that we understand that because sometimes we think all the consequences should be gone because I'm forgiven. You see, Bathsheba is still feeling the pain of everything she went through. Can't even imagine what she's going through. But she is still incredibly hurt by what David has done to her. Her husband, Uriah, is still dead. There's no bringing him back. Uh, their child dies, and the memory of, this, uh, of it all is just a constant reminder to David of his moral failure. But here's the thing. The payment of David's sin is covered on the cross of Christ. If your faith's in Christ, that's true of all of us. See, you might still be feeling the consequences of sin you've committed. I can't take that away. God has not promised to take away the consequences in that sense. But let me assure you of this, that the greatest consequence that we all face because of the sin that we have committed is the wrath of God. And if our faith is in Jesus Christ, then then he's given us the ability to repent. And then the wrath of God that we deserve has been poured out on Christ. And it's not poured out on us. It's this image. You know, in a minute we'll do the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's that cup. I can't do this because it's actually full of something this morning. But, but the idea of God's wrath being poured out. That cup is empty at that point. And what we see in scripture is that the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. That means the wrath is no longer in that cup to be poured out on you. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. And so if that's true of you, if you know that, no matter what's going on in your life, I ask, 
Rejoice in that, that your sin is forgiven. Rejoice in the mercy of God that, that has given you a future hope, no matter what failures are in your past, no matter what struggles are in your present, um, no matter what's going on in our life, we have that hope in Christ. So this is a, a psalm that really shows us the depths in one of the worst moments in his life. And yet you see him work through it, that by the end of it he's rejoicing in one simple fact, that the mercy of God. That's why we show up, isn't it? Whether it's 9 o'clock or 4 o'clock, that's why we show up, is the mercy of God has been shown to us. Because we bring real sin in here week after week after week after week. And God offers real mercy on the cross. Once for all, but we experience it week after week after week. Let's pray. God, this side of eternity, we will continue to face the temptation to sin. And from time to time, God, I am... It would be foolish for us to think anyway, either other way. We know that we will fail either in small ways or in epic ways. So God, I ask that when this happens, would your spirit lead us always to the cross, to the only place where sinners are redeemed, and may we again and again and again be reminded of your great love for us that is spoken of throughout the scriptures, uh, that's displayed in the once-for-all time sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Lord, may we come to you again and again with broken spirits and contrite hearts because you give us those. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, may we find forgiveness and mercy and steadfast love. Lord, thank you for being such a wonderful and loving and forgiving God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.